Hello, everyone. Welcome to Sundays with Saima. This podcast is made for aspiring otolaryngologists to learn from trainees and professionals in the field. I am your host, Saima Wase, fourth year medical student at Northeast Ohio Medical University. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Stephen Gowdy, Director of Pediatric Otolaryngology and Professor of Otolaryngology at Emory University School of Medicine. He earned his medical degree at the University of Louisville and pursued his residency there as well. Dr. Gowdy, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm looking forward to speaking with you. My pleasure. Super excited to be here and really impressed with what you're doing. Thank you. So to start out, what was your path to otolaryngology? It's a great question. And I am, as many universities are, you know, students don't get a great exposure or clear exposure to what otolaryngology is. Obviously, it is a relatively small specialty. Um, but I, I like science. I like the head and neck anatomy. I like doing surgery. And really, you know, during my medical school at the University of Louisville, I saw this group of folks that are walking around um, that seemed happy, but got to operate. I'm like, well, I'm going to investigate what, what's going on. They seem to have something really special. Um, and certainly, you know, there's a guy named Eric Lynch, uh, who is now a professor at the Medical University of South Carolina, who was really a mentor for me and, um, you know, demonstrated all of the things that can be involved in allergology, both clinic and OR, kids, adults, sub-subspecialties versus general practice. So, so yeah, I just, it's kind of happenstance. I mean, I didn't come from a medical background, so as many people do, just identified with the folks uh, doing it and then seemed like I fit in. Right. Um, the breadth of the field and the mentors are what attract a lot of us to the field as well. Um, so what specifically attracted you to pediatrics? When I started medical school, I, I liked the international part of medicine. I had been abroad before teaching English uh, and math and science in Ethiopia. So certainly I enjoyed the outreach part. I enjoyed the teaching part. I enjoyed the wonder that children possess and their desire just to be better. Um, and so when I was deciding, okay, well, maybe I'm going to be a pediatrician that does infectious disease and, you know, travel the world and work for the CDC and so on. Um, but then I got to meet with some of the ENT folks and saw that, wait, you know, I can do manual tasks. I like doing things with my hands. I like a rapid pace of work and take care of children and do surgery. It seemed like this um, great alignment of desires and skills that I had. And, and so it just, I never looked back. Sure. And I read about your uh, mission work that you've performed for over 20 years, offering your surgical care to patients with cleft lip and palate. And the question that I had was, how has global he health impacted your view of medicine? This is a great question. I think really, I started on the global health um, perspective when, when I was, again, when I was teaching in Ethiopia during medical school, I worked within the American Medical Student Association and did a, a summer rotation in Nigeria, another rotation in Gambia, um, providing health 
to folks that obviously were in a lower resource setting. Um, I think that that just highlighted to me the health inequities and access to care issues that exist globally. I mean, these were not surgical missions, these were medical missions and, and really just for my education. And, and certainly during my residency was exposed to and, and involved with a surgical mission to the Philippines to do cleft lip and palate surgery. And I've done that every, ever since. And that, I know that the folks on the, on the podcast can't see me, but I'm, you know, in my fifties and I have gray hair. So, you know, my residency was a little while ago, but I, I can't help but not go back and, and see and take care of the patients that um, I started on this journey with during my residency. It really is addictive um, to, to really go and provide care to folks that really otherwise won't have access to care. Um, and I think it makes you appreciate some of the, some of the things that we have here in the United States, you know, we get so caught up in, oh, well, this isn't working fast enough. This isn't good enough. We don't have all the bells and whistles and, and helps you level set and what says, wait a minute, we are actually really fortunate. Uh, it may be frustrating, but, but we're, you know, we're in a very different position as far as access to care um, where we live today. Right. And I think that's a good way to maintain gratitude throughout your career. So I think that would be very interesting um, for a lot of medical students to hear about. Um, so you, in addition to your global health, you have a business and it's called Mr. Knows Best. So can you tell us a little bit about what uh, inspired you to found that business? Right. So as an olaryngologist, the you know, nose is, is obviously central to the face and central to our practice. And as a pediatric olaryngologist, babies that can't breathe have a whole lot of trouble. Um, certainly from having a baby that has a cold and maybe RSV versus a baby that has coenal atresia, babies are obligate nasal breathers. They cannot breathe out of their mouth for the first year of life. And so meeting with family upon family, in addition to having three kids of my own, you know, it's a struggle and the struggle is real and, and certainly can be life-threatening. Um, and kids that have RSV oftentimes are admitted to the hospital just because they physically can't keep up with suction in the nose and what have you. And so uh, the company that we founded, Dr. Knows Best, I mean, it's a play on the word, in those ZE uh, Best, is that we are a company that's focused on providing innovative solutions to families to take care of their children with upper respiratory tract needs. And so uh, yeah, I was in the hospital maybe four or five years ago and talking to a family, a patient that has Down syndrome. So their noses are smaller, their nasal passageways are smaller and they were just stuck in the hospital just because they needed good suctioning. And so we developed a nasal suction device for babies that will allow families to use a hospital grade suction to clean out their baby's nose so they can breathe and then they can eat and then they can sleep and then you can sleep. So, you know, I think as surgeons, as clinicians, we're faced with a lot of things that don't seem perfect. And I would challenge all of your listeners to say, okay, well, why is that? You know, why, why are we willing to pay a thousand dollars for this thing that we carry around in our pocket that solves all our problems, but yet we're still using these old um, antiquated ways of treating patients, whether it's a suction bulb for the nose or you know, whatever else kind of thing you may think of. And so 
you know, we, we started a company to, to address a very common problem that didn't have a very elegant solution. Right. And there's so many opportunities to find little, little problems that can be easily fixed with business minded people. So what advice do you have to somebody who would be interested in solving a problem like the one that you did? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, you know, kind of the, the problem solution um, mindset of like, here's the small problem, here is, you know, maybe it's a big problem, um, but why does it exist? What, what already, what types of solutions are in the environment that can help uh, address that? And, and if there's not anything good, say, why is it? What can I do to make that different, better, et cetera? Um, you know, intellectual property is something that you need to think about because at the end of the day, if you come up with a good solution, but you don't really have a good way to monetize it or, or make money from it, then it's going to be hard to get somebody to actually make it, right? So, so an example would be um, generic drugs. So we all know that drugs, you know, drug companies make a ton of money and they sell all kinds of drugs, but as soon as the patent runs out and they're generic, then all of a sudden maybe it's hard to even <clears throat> get them. You know, companies don't want to make them, you know, because they can't make that money or the margin off of it. And so I'm not saying that we should all be mercenaries, um, but you know, if you have a problem, I think it's absolutely important to find the solution. And then part of you finding that solution is identifying. You know, you you can go to Google Patent and say, okay, how have other people tried to solve this? You know, problem what exists and then how is my solution going to be different from all those? And then, you know, you file your own patent. I mean, that's a whole different story, but, but certainly if it is a major pain point and it's not just you and your family, but people that you don't know also agree that it's a pain point and they're willing, they want a better solution. I think that that's where you start. Right. That's an excellent point. And business is kind of undervalued in medicine as in general. So that's very interesting that you've been able to perform uh, on the business side as well as the academic side. Um, so kind of heading back a little bit towards academics, what has what interests you most about uh, your research in facial formation? So obviously being a pediatric laryngologist, we deal with lots of healthy patients that have relatively common problems, meaning ear infections, tonsil infections, and, and surgically addressing that is straightforward and, and very rewarding. Additionally, we also take care of a lot of complex patients that may have been born with facial differences. And ultimately the goal is to restore form and function um, just because as an olaryngologist, we're dealing with a bunch of the senses, hearing, taste, uh, smell, right? So, so those are all super important. Certainly any deformity or difference that occurs, you know, we, you know, as a person that has all their senses intact, if, if I have a bad cold and I can't smell, I can't taste, that's super annoying. Or if I can't hear, that's bad. Or if I can't speak, you know, so, so really the goal is in my interest is in, in recreating the ability for children to excel, right? So you're, 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 as a child, your brain is very, has a lot of plasticity, but that's only finite. So really restoring those normal physiologic structural differences so that they can thrive and 
you know, leverage the plasticity that they have both surgically, but then additionally on the research side, you know, understanding how does it happen? I mean, most of the time the family's like, why did this happen? Was it because I had a diet Coke on this day? I ate Taco Bell on that day. And I'm like, no, no. I mean, this is just complicated. And the more we understand how our face works as far as formation and development, the, the closer we are to identifying solutions to either improve outcomes during and following surgery, or, you know, maybe at some point mitigate or reduce the likelihood or the severity of the differences that they may have. Sure. Um, and the implications in the clinical setting, I'm sure would be great with the impact on quality of life. Um, so you also focus on translational research. So going from basics, science to clinical science. Uh, when did you realize that basic science would be a part of your research path? So during my fellowship, I was at the University of Iowa and they have a long and history um, uh, tradition of studying cleft lip and palate and facial formation, some very, very smart genomics and uh, genetics folks. And during my research time, uh, which again, if, if you're interested in research, obviously spending time to do that, you know, is important in medical school, you, you've come to find out you're not going to spend any time at the bench, you're not going to be running Western blots or PCR or anything. So you have to figure out if you're interested in those kinds of things, where you can pick that up, either in a fellowship, or, you know, maybe an MD, PhD program, what have you. Um, but that was just kind of the jumping off point and identifying mentorship. I think mentorship is really probably something they don't talk enough about in medical school, but you have to say, who are my mentors? You know, who do I want to emulate? I can tell you now, you know, Richard Smith at the University of Iowa, Jeff Murray at the University of Iowa are some of the smartest, best human beings, surgeons, pediatricians, scientists, um, and really watching not only what they do, but how they do it. And and continuing to engage with them over your career. You know, I, I remember sitting where you are now, and I can tell you the names of three or four faculty who really were, were super impactful for me. Um, and certainly, you know, kind of were formative in my development and certainly, you know, have been, have been over my career. Absolutely. And I like the point that you make about not just observing how, not just observing what your mentors do, but also how they do it. Because in order to achieve your goals, you have to take definitive steps towards getting there. So thank you for sharing that with us. And do you have any other advice for students specifically interested in otolaryngology? Yeah, that's a that's a long that's a long topic. Um, mm -hmm. I think number one, make sure you want to do it. I think that's important. Uh, be able to articulate that. So for folks that may, I was at the University of Louisville, which is a smaller program. Um, I met yesterday with a young man who's at a medical school that doesn't really have a program. So, you know, understanding where you are and kind of what the hoops or barriers are, because otolaryngology is hard to get into. It's not impossible. They let me in. So that means that it's possible for a lot of people. Um, having said that, you know, being persistent and being prepared and, um, you know, you have to be engaged. You, you know, if, if you have a, a, 
a ENT program at your home institution, you need to know the program director. He or she needs to know that you're interested in. They need to have met with you and plot it out. You know, what are the boxes that people look at? And, you know, who are going to write your letters and what research have you done? And so on and so forth. So I think that there's a lot of strategy involved in it. Um, and, and being realistic about, you know, if if your grades are terrible and your scores are terrible, that's going to be hard. Doesn't mean it's impossible, but you're going to have to take a very different approach. It may involve, you know, a couple of years of research. You may have to, you know, you know, go and I don't know, uh, work with mother Teresa or, or whomever, like to have some sort of really um, different approach than a lot of candidates. But at the same time, I, you know, I think it really, you know, for if you're really committed to it, I think it, it's going to work out for you, but you, you need to have, again, it's that mentorship, that advocacy, um, and, and really throwing yourself at it, um, in every way you can. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I think we've covered a great deal of topics here. You have a wealth of experience in academic medicine as a physician scientist with specific interests in global health and business. Um, any final thoughts, Dr. Gowdy? I don't, you know, I, I'm just, I love what I do. I love, you know, for me, I love getting up in the morning and take care of kids, you know, and, and so certainly I think burnout is, is real. Um, both as a medical student, as a resident, as a faculty member. So I, I think that, um, you know, just keeping top of mind that you're there to help people, you know, and, and understanding that, yeah, there's going to be a lot of frustration and friction um, around you um, is, is, is something to expect, yet keeping that balanced in your mind of that, you know, for, for me, I live in Georgia and some people may drive three or four or five hours to be seen that day and just thinking about their journey and, and what is it they're hoping and worried about and, and kind of keeping that balance with, Oh, well, I didn't, you know, I didn't get this grade on an exam or, or, you know, so-and-so was, you know, mean to me or, you know, the OR was unprepared. All of those things are going to happen. The, you know, just part of life, but keeping that balance with, we have a great job. We're touching and healing people. That's important. There's nothing like medicine, um, and I'm really honored to have spoken with you today and learned from all of your great experiences. So thank you so much again. Yeah, no, happy to talk to you and happy to talk to anybody else that has any questions. But uh, yeah, keep doing what you're doing. That's really great. I admire you. Thank you. As always, thank you to the listeners for joining me this Sunday to hear from our special guest, Dr. Stephen Gowdy. Stay tuned for another episode of Sundays with Saima.